the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome to OnScript, keeping you off Netflix one episode at a time. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of the podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thank you so much for tuning your dial to this frequency. We're into the cold, wintry months now, and nothing says winter, and in many cases, lockdown, like an OnScript episode. And if you've never shared the word about OnScript, uh, could I ask you to do something slightly unconventional. We have talked a lot on this podcast about ways to get the word out. You can give us a a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. Uh, But there are other ways too that you can can spread the good news. And, And so what I recommend is to take a piece of paper and then write on that paper onscript.study and maybe a note like my favorite podcast or something. And then take a casserole dish or a pie pan and then put the paper in it and then cover the dish or pan with tinfoil. And then take it to a a neighbor, knock on the door, and then run. And the neighbor's going to open the door and say, oh, gosh, not not another hot meal or, you know, not another pie from my neighbor. And then when they open it, think of the pleasant surprise when they find out that it's a podcast recommendation instead of a a lousy pie or, or casserole. You, you could even write on this sheet something like, please send back my pie pan with a freshly baked pie, LOL, or something like that. Uh, but in any case, doing it's doing that kind of thing that really helps get the word out. And I think will will be a real blessing to our neighbors during this difficult time. So thanks for taking those simple steps. And we really appreciate you uh, listening to the podcast and hope you enjoy this one today. An interesting question is whether the world of open theism represents a genuine possibility. Could God, if God chose, create a world containing creatures whose decisions became known only when they make them? If the answer is no, then we have identified something that God lacks the ability to do. And unless such a world is as logically contradictory as a square circle, a flat-out logical impossibility, God's inability to create it represents a significant limitation to, to God's power. On the other hand, if the answer is yes, that is, if God indeed has the power to create a world with an open future, a future unknown to God, then the question that separates open theism from other views of God is not, what sort of power does God have, or what sort of world could God create? The real question that divides them is this, what sort of world did God create, and why would God create this particular world rather than any other? Welcome to On Script. This is Matthew Bates. And I was reading from Richard Rice's book, The Future of Open Theism from Antecedents to Opportunities. Richard is here with me today. Welcome to On Script. Thank you, Matthew. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Now, Richard, how does this how does this question about whether or not God is able to create a world where open theism is possible? Why is this a sharply pointed challenge to classical theism? Well, I think the three omnis of classical theism, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, have played an essential central role in defining God's identity for a good deal of of, uh, Christian history. And one of the questions there is, how shall we make sense out of these? And often uh, the the introduction to the discussion has to do with omnipotence and what does perfect power involve? Well, if we say power to do anything, then the question becomes, well, what about creating square circles? What about creating married bachelors? (laughs) What about creating an uncreated universe? Well, the response to that is typically that that is not defining anything Therefore, it can't be a limitation of God's power. God has unlimited power. And so the question when it comes to omniscience, I believe, is can God know the unknowable? Well, then the question is, well, 
are there things that are knowable and things that are not knowable? And how should we understand God's knowledge? So those are related. Now, the question that you posed about power was, uh, what kind of world is God capable of creating? And I think any world that is logically possible, that would be the typical response. God can do anything logically possible. Um, and then we would want to add, as, as believers, that God would not want to do anything that was evil, because that would go against his fundamental goodness. So there, there are other qualifications of power. But the one I was interested in addressing was, did God have alternatives when it came to the kind of world God wanted to create. Now, along with classical theism generally, and certainly conservative Christian thought, um, open theists believe that the world is entirely dependent on God um, for its existence. And the question is, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a world if God hadn't created it. The, the fact that the world exists at all is because God decided to create. So... Then the question is, what kind of world? Well, what alternatives were available to God? Could God have created a world where absolutely everything was just the way it was designed to be? Perfect plan. Could God have created that kind of world? I believe God had that kind of power. God could have created that kind of world. I also believe that God had an alternative that God could create a world, including beings, with whom God could interact and with whom God could cooperate in bringing about certain values that uh, presupposed an interaction between God and the creatures. And so open theists believe that was a genuine possibility, that was a real alternative, and that God chose to create that kind of world, that it's logically possible. Now, the question, why would God want to create such a world? What would, be, uh, what would make that world uh, more attractive from God's perspective than one where God decided everything? Well, that leads us down uh, uh, another path of questions that you may want to pose. Yeah. Um, it, it's certainly a sharp challenge to kind of think about questions like, is God powerful enough to circumscribe his own power, right? And uh, um, certainly um, we would want to say that we've classically wanted to say that God, for instance, um, is willing to do um, certain kinds of emptying of his, of, of his full prerogatives of his divinity um, whenever he takes on, um, you know, human form in the, in, in the Christ, right? Uh, and that the incarnation circumscribes God's um, divine prerogatives without emptying his divinity. Um, maybe would we want to say the same about his power? Um, I, I appreciate how you've already started to um, expose open theism for us a little bit. Um, and I think that's one of the really helpful things you do in the book, frankly, is that you, you lead us through a variety of different kinds of open theism, helping us to see that um, not um, all open theisms are making the same kinds of claims. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I'm wondering if you can do a little bit more to unpack open theism, especially for people who aren't um, familiar with its claims. And maybe you could position it um, uh, over against certain kinds of other ways of thinking about God's providence. So we would maybe have like models um, of eternalism, uh, the Molinist option, uh, process theology. How is open theism different from maybe those three, or maybe you would like to expand the list and, and offer some different contrasts? I'm not sure. Let me just sort of follow up what we were talking about or what I was saying sure. uh, a moment ago. I think... Um, you talked about emptying. I would like to, yes, I think that recalls the famous passage in Philippians where uh, Christ emptied himself, or the Son empties himself and comes into the world. I want to be very careful when we talk about power that we don't think of God as somehow uh, having diminished power in creating a world. It's not just that God decides to create a world where others have something to do. Um, and not just God making the decisions, but that that's another expression of power. 
It's the way in which God seeks to express his power. There's a difference between power over and empowering others to make their own uh, decisions and interact in a positive way. I think a good analogy there would be the challenge parents face. Um, you can you can sort of exercise your parental authority by insisting that your kids never do anything on their own except what you tell them to do. They are obedient down to a T. Or a lot of us would say, I don't know if you're a parent, Matthew. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I think the, the challenge we face as parents, mine are middle, well, mine are in their 40s now. But the challenge parents face as uh, as their children grow is, of course, we have control over them early on to a very significant extent, but it's to encourage them to uh, develop their own powers to the point that they, by the time they're adults, they're able to take charge of their own lives, they're able to make decisions on their own. And so you derive great satisfaction from seeing them make responsible decisions and uh, discover the talents that they had, maybe some that you never had that somehow they got. And it's a different way of looking at the, the way in which God exercises God's power. So God, God takes great delight in empowering um, his creatures. And I think this is reflected in the creation narratives where God brings as a sort of a climactic act in Genesis 1, God creates beings in his image. And then in Genesis 2, we have a, 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 another narrative where God invites Adam to name the animals. And biblical scholars sometimes point out that giving something a name in the um, in the the Hebrew tradition was in a sense to fully bring it into the realm of existing things. So I just, I want to emphasize that, that God is sharing the opportunity to participate in deciding the course of things. Now, process philosophy, I believe, provided a powerful precedent for many of us who are open theists. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Charles Hartshorn, who with uh, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, the two of them are the best known philosophers of process thought. And for them, time is essential to the nature of reality. It's not uh, 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 somehow distant from ultimate reality as part of the way things are. Uh, time, uh, reality is essentially temporal. And I think for me, at any rate, studying that led me to take a new look at some of the biblical evidence that seems to support the idea that God's um, experience is an ongoing experience and it has variations within it. Now, the classical view of God is that power is all power. And uh, from a, within Protestant thought, a Calvinist view which expresses the Reformation conviction that God is the one who decides unilaterally who is saved, is carried to a logical conclusion by saying God alone decides who is saved and therefore who is lost. So the notion of double predestination is a part of the, what would we say, the logical conclusion of the idea that our salvation is entirely determined by what God gives and not by anything that we contribute to it. Now, Calvin himself describes this sort of logical conclusion, and that is the damnation of the wicked as something that God predestines them to as a horrible doctrine. But following the logic of the idea, it came, to, uh, um, it came to that conclusion. It didn't show up until the end of verse, uh, book three of the Institutes. Later on, there were those who took that notion of divine decrees to be the sort of the, the starting point of their understanding of God and God's relation to the world. Now, within uh, Protestantism, there was a reaction to this on the part of, uh, of Arminius 
and that branch of Protestantism, Methodism, and others who are sympathetic to the idea that said, no, I think God enables us, gives us the opportunity to accept salvation. But whether we do or not is something that we're responsible for and not God. So that is to say, God is entirely responsible for the gift of salvation, but we have the opportunity of accepting it or not. And that, I think, is where um, there's a big difference between the conservative branch of Christianity, the conservative branch that sees uh, uh, whether or not humans do have the ability, the God-given ability to respond to the gift of salvation, or whether it's something that's assigned by God to every single one of us. And so that's the difference. Now, as I understand Molinism, it's not a branch of <laughs> Protestantism as we're talking about, but it is the idea that God can see every possibility and then also see which possibilities uh, are selected or will be selected by certain individuals in the future. So they're able to somehow um, reconcile absolute foreknowledge with genuine creaturely freedom. Now, the problem that that creates is if the future is completely knowable to God, then it must be already an object of perfect knowledge and therefore definite. And so that seems, at least from an open theist perspective, to create an irresolvable uh, conflict. That if the future is open, if we don't make decisions until we make them, well, then may, God may know the alternatives, anticipate the alternatives, but not become aware of the actual choices we make until we make them. Now, does that, the big question is, does that represent a deficiency in divine knowledge? Now, it sounds like, and this is where I want to be <laughs> even press against some of my fellow open theists, because I see that not as limiting God, nor do I like the idea that there are parts of the future that God is ignorant of, because it sounds like what you're doing is putting a limitation on God's knowledge. Well, I don't think that's a limitation of God's knowledge any more than not being able to create square circles is somehow a limitation on God's power. It's a clarification of what meaning the expression perfect power has. And therefore, I would say that God not knowing certain aspects of the future, and here again, it's hard to talk about it without, you know, assuming or at least using language that suggests that there are those aspects of the future, but there are certain things that are going to happen or eventually will happen that are not there as meaningful objects of knowledge. So if the question is, does God know everything there is to know? I think a classical theist and an open theist would say, yes, God knows everything there is to know. And the big question then becomes, well, are future free decisions there to know? And I think a, a Molinist answer is an attempt to somehow reconcile creaturely freedom with uh, the traditional view of absolute foreknowledge. Yeah, I think I think that sounds like a fair summary. I, I think that uh, the best I understand the Molinist defense um, would be, uh, as part of it, would usually be a non-causal claim with regard to God's foreknowledge. Like, although God knows um, what future free beings will choose, he does not, that knowledge is not necessarily causal knowledge. Um, but uh, that's probably moving a little bit outside my area of expertise quickly. Let me do a little bit more to introduce you as our guest. Um, Richard Rice received an MDiv uh, from Andrews University in 1969 and an MA and PhD in Christian Theology from the University of Chicago in 1972 and 74. 
Uh, he's taught at a variety of places, La Sierra University, Riverside, California, and then uh, Loma Linda uh, University for a great number of years. And uh, I come to discover he has just retired just this year after, did you say 46 years? Is that true? 46 years in the classroom, yeah. 46 it's, years uh, in the classroom, that's tremendous. It's one of these 10 years. I started graduate school 50 years ago. Wow. I can't, um, I haven't yet comprehended just what that means. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, the, the, yeah, you, 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 you deserve the time and the leisure to contemplate that for a long time until you figure <laughs> it out. Let's put it that way. Well, I, uh, I, I've discovered that uh, a transition like this is a major uh, a major challenge. I, I read a book review, a, a review of a book recently that talked about, uh, among several professions, what professors go through. And the title was, the title of the review was, when uh, what you do is no longer who you are. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, a little bit more on uh, on Richard Rice. He's the sole author of a number of books. Uh, I'll just mention a few. Uh, God's Foreknowledge and Man's Free Will. Um, the Reign of God, an Introduction to Christian Theology from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective. And another book, Search for Meaning, Contemporary Responses to the Problem of Pain. He also co-authored, along with Clark Pennock, John Sanders, William Hasker, and David Bassinger, a book that for all practical purposes, I think it's fair to say, launched open theism into the mainstream of theological conversation. The title of that book, The Openness of God, A Biblical Challenge to the Traditional Understanding of God. And indeed, that book did, I think... Um, uh, provoke uh, widespread conversations. Now, Richard, you've had a long history with open theism. Um, why this book at this particular time in the ongoing theological conversation? Well, I think it's helpful to sort of pause every once in a while and say, how did we get here? Where are we? And where we might go? Where might we go? It's um, I guess it's the kind of book that people are inclined to write later in their careers because you, you've sort of been around a while and you've seen a, a development. It's also, for my money, uh, a book that's open, uh, vulnerable to a lot of criticisms because it raises questions and people whose work is described in there may have a different way of characterizing their own positions. So I, I'm not a historian, and I, putting this together uh, made me appreciate the challenges historians face, because you have to be selective. And so I've been selective, both in the, the proponents of the position that I share and uh, criticisms of it. But I think it might be useful for people to, uh, to see how, uh, what should I say, how heated the conversation has been. You know, it really... It's really been remarkable. Uh, some people have had to leave positions that they had as a result of their views. Um, as Clark Pinnock uh, said, and I quote him in the book, he, he didn't ever expect there would be this kind of, uh, of uh, conflict generated within the conservative community. Um, I don't know. I think that's, that's unfortunate. I wish, and I'm glad I, I followed the conversation, I hope, in a persuasive way to say, and, and the fact that we're having this inter, you know, this conversation between us may be uh, an indication that things have, shall we say, mellowed a bit after the first reaction. And uh, this is something worth thinking about. One of the things about open theism that uh, has generated a measure of appreciation, or at least uh, respect, even from its ardent critics, is the fact that it is very sensitive to certain biblical descriptions of God that are often just glided over and uh, rather uh, peremptorily dismissed when it comes to developing a biblically-based doctrine of God. And these are descriptions of God's willingness to change his mind, God's disappointment, and then even God's joy. So the, I think the fundamental, I, I would put it this way, I think for me, this would be a kind of biographical account. I studied process philosophy 
and uh, with a well-known process theologian in graduate school. And I came to the conclusion that it made uh, logical sense out of some of the important biblical descriptions of God that were slighted by the more familiar classical Thomistic uh, Greek-influenced uh, theological views. So that uh, God could have created a world with what I would call an open future and engaged in extensive interaction with beings. Um, and once, once you're sort of open to that possibility, there are all sorts of uh, biblical descriptions that seem to support that view. And I could, I could give, uh, give you a number of them. Uh, one would be the famous description of conditional prophecy in Jeremiah, where God says, I can declare this is going to happen or I'm going to do this. And then if things change, then I'll change. And so, as, as you know, the, the notion of divine immutability is so central to the biblical, or let's say the traditional view of God, that the idea that God ever changes, that God changes his actions or changes his experience, just doesn't fit it. The idea there is God, God has the whole realm of reality in one timeless object of experience, perception, you might say. And that's it. Nothing changes there. So um, open theism, in a sense, complicates that picture of God and says there are things about God that don't change, that are just as immutable as the classic tradition maintains, God's existence, God's character, and so forth. But... There are other aspects of God that involve change. In fact, there are degrees to which God changes more than anything else. Hence the title of Clark Pinnock's book, The Most Moved Mover. Yeah, and the idea behind that, that as God continues to experience dynamic unfolding reality and um, grows through that experience in some way, um, that he's, he's changed more than any other being um, as he takes in the purview of all that, right? Uh, that's, that's the basic mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Nicely expressed. Yeah, so obviously um, a lot of the task in open theism is to press back on some of these um, biblical descriptions like immutability and say like, well, of course they're true, um, but we have to be careful just like with regard to God's power, uh, God's omniscience that we, um, that we, we parse out um, maybe aspects of um, uh, immutability that makes sense, like God's nature, uh, God's character qualities, but ones that perhaps don't. Um, and uh, be careful in at least how we're, uh, while affirming immutability, being careful what's within the purview of that. I want to give um, the reader, uh, excuse me, the listener, and hopefully the eventual reader of your of your fine um, book, The Future of Open Theism, I want to give them a, a sense of some of the flavor of the objections that were raised um, as the openness of God uh, caused conversation to explode. Um, there were... Uh, for lack of better word, um, trials uh, at ETS um, testing whether the, the membership of um, Clark Pinnock and John Sanders, whether their, their membership should continue to be valid or whether it sh they should be um, scrubbed from the list right of the ETS. Uh, and a lot of powerful, uh, strong feelings um, back and forth. There must have been a challenging time to um, to. Uh, try to navigate your own spiritual life. So anyway, I, I was going to read a little bit uh, Bruce Ware's response as you summarized on page 54. This also gives the listener a sense of your writing. As Bruce Ware, uh, who was an opponent, uh, we can summarize him this way. Uh, Give up absolute foreknowledge, Ware insists, and we are left with a Bible devoid of its hundred of divine predictions regarding future free human actions, a gospel unable to account for God's eternal design, in which he foreknows and purposes to save those who would inevitably sin against him, and a view of Christian faith that exaggerates the human contribution to the future and diminishes God's knowledge, wisdom, and certainty. Most unfortunate of all, the result of denying foreknowledge is a God with truncated knowledge and imperfect wisdom, a God who holds false beliefs about the future, and a God who may make mistakes, 
and whose inability to make accurate predictions reduces him to the level of the idols denounced by the prophet Isaiah. Um, so there's a pretty uh, a pretty forceful critique that Ware and um, and other people um, uh, were launching during this season of life. Um, and as you say, things have sort of maybe calmed down a bit and uh, perhaps an opportunity to more fully learn from one another is, is what we're finding in the academy right now. So maybe you'd be willing to answer this more personal question um, as it's something I'm curious about, but how did that difficult time impact your own spiritual journey um, as you were like doubtless friends with a number of people and probably this impacted your career too. Um, how did you, um, how did you cope <laughs> during that time? That's a very interesting question. And uh, in some ways it invites a very personal response. Um, I'd been a lifelong Seventh-day Adventist and uh, I have not joined the Evangelical Theological Society because its view of biblical inerrancy seems to impose from our, my perspective um, a view of divine, uh, what would we say, um, precision in inspiring the contents of the Bible as we have them. And I think there's more room for human involvement and expression that, than that seems to allow for. It seems to indicate that what's in the Bible is exactly what God wants in the Bible, and if it's and, and that's it. And my own view of inspiration is that uh, the not the words are inspired, but the men are inspired, and they're using the best words they have to communicate the ideas that God has given them. So I. Uh, the impressions that God has generated. So that's so. In a sense, I stood um, uh, outside as an observer of the Evangelical Theological Society. It's interesting you should raise that. The five of us who had contributed to the book were invited to make a presentation to the Evangelical Theological Society in its Denver meeting early on, and I pointed out I wasn't a member, which was a requirement of being a panelist there. And I explained the position I just laid out, and they said, oh, well, let us get back to you. And then they said, you can, you can participate if you're a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and you don't have to sign a statement to join that group. So I became a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and and then joined the other four contributors to the book. And it generated a lot of discussion. But I'm glad to say that uh, that seems to have subsided. And there are those who would say, uh, as I've indicated in the book, uh, the one we're talking about, the future of open theism, that there were those who later on said, you know, um, it's a part of evangelical theology. Uh, it, it's not a radical repudiation of it. And so the overreact, well, I'm not sure they use the word overreaction, but that's not the only way in which we should regard these people. I think uh, predestination, absolute foreknowledge, has played an important role in upholding the uh, majesty of God. But I think it's been carried to extremes that undermine important aspects of the biblical portrayal. And this is why I think the questions are so fundamental. What kind of world did God create? And behind that's the question, what kind of God created the world? And I think that when we look carefully, and early on in the book, I talk about some people who've examined in great detail the biblical predictions of the future. And they have found that they are much more complicated than simply the idea of traditional idea of divine foreknowledge accounts for. I guess I would say something like, well, I would like to, to offer this, defi well, this definition, but this designation of God's relation to the future. God enjoys perfect anticipation hmm. of what is to come. Now, 
what is to come clearly is extensively already definite and determined by what exists now. If it weren't, science would be a waste of time. Scientists are telling us what's going to happen or what's likely to happen uh, on the basis of what's already happened. And common sense requires this. You know, I, I believe my car will respond to my commands today because it did yesterday and, and so forth. So that's just, just, just part of living in a world where there's some continuity. Um, part of the future is definite, but then there are other parts that are less definite. Some parts are probable and not clearly definite. Now, some things are highly probable, some things are highly improbable. We make uh, plans for the future on both of those. If you're going camping to the high Sierras for a weekend, um, you probably want to take along a first aid kit and a spare tire and things like that. Not because you are looking forward to getting a snake bite <laughs> or a sprained ankle or a flat tire, but because you want to be ready if that happens. So I, I like to think of perfect anticipation as involving uh, an awareness of all the possibilities, including the negative ones, and being prepared to meet them adequately. So I would say God's knowledge of the future includes knowing everything that's definitely going to happen, knowing all the probabilities of what's likely to happen, knowing all the possibilities, including the negative ones, and being prepared to meet any eventuality. Um, yeah, that's so, helpful. Um, it kind of there's a, there's a number of different ways that I kind of want to push the interview in light of that. You had some really interesting material on game theory um, that uh, I believe you drew, were drawing on Alan Rota. Is that um, is that correct? On and that the other the other avenue that I want to chase down here is um, the, the the material you 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 did on um, sort of on the question of free will and on um, kind of uh, like instead of a bottom down. Uh, the direction of causality, like system causality that can press back downward rather than upward. Um, and so thinking about um, both of those, um, let's let's maybe kind of chase down the second rabbit trail first. Um, so let's just say um, that God has this perfect anticipation of the future, right? And so God then like, um, let's say he, he knows all the chemical states in my brain, right? And there's the specter of determinism that we have to deal with, right? That, and that, that you do address in the book of how do we, if God has a, uh, if he knows everything that is presently available, knows all the chemical reactions happening in my brain, um, then in, you know, 20 nanoseconds, God would surely know, um, would seem be able to predict what my brain's going to be de determining, right? In 20 nanoseconds, 40 nanoseconds past that, whatever it might be, um, the specter of determinism sort of looms large there. Um, and I, I felt that your discussion was helpful, at least to me, in thinking through um, the interface of, of free will with, um, with determinism. Um, yeah, how, how do we how do we we interact then God uh, with with sort of God's perfect anticipation with uh, the idea of that's still leaving room for free will? You've uh, entered an area that I approached very tentatively, and that is what do we do with neuroscience? What do we do with the growing uh, evidence? It appears that our actions and uh, maybe a great deal of the future is. Uh, so <laughs> closely <laughs> uh, determined or apparently determined that it looks like uh, an all-knowing being who knows every atom and its operation in the brain wouldn't know well in advance what you're going to do. But I think you can, I think you can anticipate the future. You can, well, let's say you can know what's going to happen without having, um, uh, but still allow for some degree of, of free will and interaction and so on. Um, th there is on one level of our understanding, or our, let's put it this way, there is a deep conviction that we are to a significant extent responsible for our behavior. Um, I'm a little, in a sense, um, I'm, Intrigued, let me use that word. I'm intrigued by those 
who argues so vigorously uh, for a, a version of determinism to the degree that it would eliminate all notion of human freedom. And even if you carry uh, your model to its conclusion, Matthew, there's no self. There's no Matthew making these decisions. There's simply a sequence of electrochemical reactions in the brain of this uh, hominoid figure <laughs> that is, uh, every action is determined by the previous, um, you know, uh, electrochemical experience in the brain, electrochemical factors in the brain. Yeah. If people really believe, I mean, if, if people were deeply convinced of that, why would they bother trying to put together a clear and convincing argument that this was the right position? Because sure. yeah, if a, we believe what we believe, because we're just made the way that leads us to that, it would seem like um, the kind of interaction we're having right here would not make any sense. You're going to yeah. wind up with your beliefs, I'll wind up with mine, because... We don't control what's going on there. So I find a, sort of the substratum of those who argue vigorously for, I would call it, a, a very highly deterministic view of human behavior, um, the conviction that that is not fully adequate to the way human beings are put together. Sure. Yeah, it's sort of a reduction to a gross materialism or physicalism that um, I think ph philosophers in general have been pushing back on for, for a long season, right, as we would want to. Most, most I think, uh, in the philosophical community, at least as best I can read it, would want to affirm some sort of like um, – a sense of like a higher order substance with causal powers, right? That, that goes beyond the reduction, right? That, that as, as we move upward to uh, higher systems, those can, those can have a, a causal impact back downward. Right. And so that, um, yes, uh -huh. the idea would like, like kind of like an Aristotelian idea that like the, the water, right. Is more than the sum of its parts, right. That right. like it, that like if you have hydrogen, you know, and you have, oxygen um well those each have their own independent properties right hydrogen is one thing oxygen another they have certain kinds of chemical when you combine them into water some new properties are formed and so on up the chain right as as you have higher order substances they have new causal powers um, and that would be a kind of a classic aristotelian way i think of speaking about um such things of, of substance potentiality actuality and and whatnot um, well i think uh I'm attracted to the expression by philosophers uh, Nancy Murphy and Philip Clayton, um, who offer in, in each each in his or her own way versions of non-reductive physicalism. Yes, I think it's clear we are physical beings. Without the brains we have, we wouldn't have the minds we have. But that doesn't mean that every thought, every intention, is utterly determined by physical causes. It presupposes a certain physical complexity, but it doesn't reduce all mental experience to just physical chemical interaction. Yeah, uh, well, that's that's helpful to kind of walk through um, some of that material. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was I was clearly venturing into an area that uh, vastly exceeds any expertise I can claim, but I did want to sort of sketch uh, a little of the conversations because there are some serious philosophical challenges here. If I could mention another one, it would be the idea of uh, present. What, what does it mean for the universe to have a present that God experiences? So if, if as open theists maintain, the world is an ongoing series of events, inestimable in, in the complexity and number, God experiences uh, one experience after another, the whole of reality. And that's, that's a challenge. And I, philosopher, you know, what is the, what is the, what is the nature of the past in, in connection with the present and the future? And I also touch on that here, because that's clearly a question that arises with the uh, view of open theism. And as the book indicates, open theists have different ways of trying to address that. Yeah, uh, that's certainly an, an area of interest, I think, to that you sort of get pushed into anytime you're trying to deal with, with um, you know, ultimate questions about God. I, 
I recently read um, Edward Fazer's book, Aristotle's Revenge, and it had a, it had a very thoughtful treatment of, um, of time that was helpful to me. And I, I would not even want to try to begin articulating it, not being a philosopher or an Aristotelian. Um, but I need to do more work myself on God and time. And that's part of the reason I'm, I'm always interested in these conversations. Although, uh, as you said, moving outside your area of expertise is, um, is, uh, is always dangerous. It's also what stimulates us, right? Uh, and that's well, why I'm, it is, yeah. I always, I'm a biblical scholar, right? I don't have expertise in philosophy or in systematic theology other than, you know, as I'm slowly trying to acquire some uh, by continuing to read, but it's also what I find most thought-provoking usually. That's why I keep reading um, on the fringes of my own discipline in it that is. way. Like, very crudely put, I think the history of Christian thought is the encounter of the biblical view of God and the understanding of salvation, particularly as coming to its climax in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and moving that into the Greco-Roman world, where there were some serious challenges to this. And <clears throat> the solution to the idea of a, or let's say, uh, a capricious God or a polytheistic view of things was the view that prevailed in classical Greek, what we think of as classical Greek thought, Plato and Aristotle, ultimate reality is changeless. The Greeks needed to believe high thinking Greeks, reflective Greeks, the fathers of philosophy, founders of philosophy came to the conclusion there must be something in reality that is absolutely unchanging. Otherwise, we can't make sense of things. So that was the, and that was one of the big questions in philosophy from, sure. yes, from Thales know. on. Yeah. What is ultimate reality? Is it always changing or is it changeless? Yeah. And the, the consensus came to be that it is changeless. And that was a way of sort of counteracting the idea of, the um, in, in the polytheistic world of ancient Greece, that uh, the gods were fickle and basically the gods weren't that interested in us at all. Well, for biblical, for Christians, it was clear that God was deeply invested in the world, caring and loving to make the ultimate sacrifice of sending God's son into the world. And yet at the same time, they wanted to affirm things about God that would secure God from some sort of polytheistic, relativistic view of God. And so I think what happened was, when it comes to the doctrine of God, these Greek ideas that we've laid out in terms of omnipotence, omniscience, and so forth, and changelessness, immutability, that was a, a central part of this, that came in and um, had quite an effect on uh, uh, Christian uh, theology, particularly when it came from the, uh, the Greeks to the Latin-speaking, uh, Augustine and others, the idea of God changing just didn't make any sense to a good uh, Neoplatonist like Augustine. And uh, I got to admit, that's, that's the standard list of attributes that you find in systematic theology. Yeah. I looked up a paper I'd written, The Doctrine of God, I had to put together as a sophomore in college, Introduction to Theology. And I quoted the uh, classic view of God. It's right there. Nothing about God ever changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I think um, on the one hand, you know, biblical scholarship has been in a, a long phase of reassessment, you know, in terms of this, um, you know, the, the, the thesis that's dominated from the time of Harnock and and, and onward, you know, that um, that really like there was a capitulation to Greek culture, that we had this Hebrew culture, then there was a capitulation to Greek culture, you know, and obviously with Martin Hingle's work, there's been large press back on that to the degree that the New Testament was already Hellenized and thoroughly and sort of imbues um, Greek ideas already. So obviously that's a complicated conversation, right? As if we find in, for instance, Hebrews, um, certain ideas that would support uh, heavenly realities that seem eternal. Um, is that something that is, um, 
uh, God-given revelation in the sense that God's trying to give us a true philosophical system? Does it mean we have to embrace Plato? Uh, we have um, some contemporary theologians that would seem to be pressing in that direction, um, uh, that would seem to want to prioritize a Platonic kind of uh, reality, and then others who would say, no, I'm not so sure. Interestingly, of course, we have Aristotle um, in the ancient world, you know, uh, with the more mediating position. You've got Pythagoras and you've got Plato fronting eternal realities, right? And then we have the Aristotelian position that wants to say, no, there's always, um, there's always change, uh, but there's always stability, right? There, there, there's both mm -hmm. and that they that ha happen simultaneously, right? We have potentiality and actuality. Uh, and so we, f we find the Thomistic tradition, right? Emerging um, with uh, drawing on Aristotle so strongly and a huge shift in Christian theology uh, when we get to the time of uh, Aquinas. Uh, but, uh, but it's interesting, even in light of that, categories like immutability still predominate uh, afterwards. Uh, and there's, um, I think, a lot of rethinking around those categories that happens and still needs to happen. I wanted to, um, before I, I, our time ends entirely as we need to begin wrapping up, I wanted to ask you a question. And this is a question that pertains to my own research work as I'm, I'm trying to figure out what models uh, work, uh, how to think through um, different ideas of classical theism versus you know, kind of possibilities within Molinism or open theism. Um, and I'm wrestling with all this myself. I, I tend to default to um, either classical theism or perhaps the Molinist option. I'm not an open theist, at least you all haven't persuaded me yet. I'm still learning from you. But I was curious then um, how you would think through um, this kind of result that I find when I do my Trinitarian work. Uh, and the work that I've done has to do with um, what's technically called prosopological exegesis, but it involves a prophet speaking from an alternative person. All right, so the idea would be this, that David, for instance, although is a, as a Hebrew prophet, like was inspired by God to speak from the person of Christ, so that um, the Christ hasn't appeared on the scene yet, won't appear on the scene for a thousand years, uh, but nevertheless, David is inspired to speak specific words in the person of the Christ, and the Christ then is speaking to God the Father. So we see these moments of dialogue. Um, and part of the complexity is that it involves a lot of time shift, right? And so I've been trying to think through, like, how, does it, how do I best speak about God in time in light of this time shift? So let me give you an example. This would be an example I like to use to explain prosopological exegesis. And maybe you can think through with me how an open theist would make sense of this. So the example is Romans 15, 3, where Paul says that Christ is speaking the words, and the words come from Psalm 69. So this would be an example where David is speaking in the person of the Christ, at least from Paul's vantage point. All right, so um, from the person of the Christ then, and using the Psalter, uh, Paul says that, that the Christ said, the insults of those who insulted you fell upon me. The insults of those who insulted you fell upon me. That's the quote from the Psalter. Right, and so as I've done my research work, I, it would seem to be that this that Paul sees the that the Christ speaking this at the right hand of the Father, and he's addressing God the Father. So he says to God the Father, you know, oh God the Father, the insults of those who were insulting you, Father, they fell upon me. So Jesus is speaking, or the Christ is speaking about the moment of crucifixion, right? While he was being crucified, the insults of those who were insulting God, they fell upon the Christ. Right. And so it's an interesting thing because the Christ, right, um, is speaking in his session at the right hand of God the Father, and he's reflecting back upon his experiences of the cross, right? Saying, When I was on the cross, the insults of those who were insulting you, they fell upon me. Right. Um, but meanwhile, we have David speaking these words in the person of the Christ far in advance of them happening. So we have a lot of time shift going on, right? We have uh, the, the horizon of David as a prophet a thousand years before the Christ. Uh, we have then uh, the Christ speaking these at his session at the right hand of the Father, but we have the Christ speaking them about a prior, a prior moment, right, as he's looking back on the moment of the cross, saying, whenever I was suffering on the cross, the insults of those who insulted you, Father, they fell upon me. Um, how do you make sense of those kinds of dynamic tense shifts, or would you? And here I'm inviting you to speculate, and maybe you don't have an answer yet. Maybe you need to think through it more. Um, but that, those are the kind of like exegetical problems that I'm trying to work through as I think through God and time. And I was just curious, while I had you um, on the line, if you uh, would think through that with me. Any thoughts on that? 
I must confess, I'm not, I think this is the first time I've heard your word, prosopologically. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's okay. okay. No, it's, it's, new, it's newer research. It's, um, it's, it draws on early church fathers and on um, their, um, their own exegesis of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, I and others have made the case that we find this happening in the New Testament uh, and uh, that we find these moments where the the th through the voice of the prophet, right? Um, the prophet is taking on a different character and speaking from the person of Christ to God the Father, sometimes in the person of God the Father, sometimes uh, in the person of the people speaking to God. It's There's a variety of different kind of um, in-person speeches that we find. So uh, you can see why the, the, the questions of God and time, right, loom large in this. Uh, because if you have a prophet speaking, you know, uh, in the person of the future Christ, right, and then you have the future Christ speaking to God the Father about past events, um, how how do I best model God in time? <laughs> That's sort of the question that that I've been struggling with. So I, I don't know if you have anything that you want to offer right now, but uh, well, I'll have to think about that. Yeah, I'm wondering yeah. that. Often, what happens is that words spoken by people before prophetic words, and so on, wind up being quoted in the New Testament by later writers as meeting a situation right then and there in a remarkable way. Um, whether that constitutes somehow a retro act, <laughs> uh, assignment to its meaning is something that uh, I, I think students of prophecy might have some questions about. In other words, what, what you have in the way of foretelling and so forth is brought together to form a new um, collage in ways that part of what was there before and uh, is brought in and fulfilled and part of it isn't. Uh, one example that comes immediately to mind is Jesus talking um, well, reading a, a passage in the Bible to the congregation at the synagogue in uh, Nazareth. Sure, yeah. And he doesn't complete the, um, the reading, stops short, and there's it, it part of it that's not uh, read, evidently. And uh, then he sits down and he says, today it's, filled in, it's fulfilled in your you're hearing or before your eyes, as if to say Jesus selected uh, a certain part of this as being fulfilled and not necessarily the more negative part of that. So I think, um, I, I think the idea of anticipation and fulfillment, as you've just suggested, is a very complicated one. Uh, it almost sounds the way that you were laying it out as if to say, the future is determining the words that are used by David a thousand years before. So how could that be if there isn't a kind of a transcendence of the time that's gap right. as yeah, far as Jesus' fair, relation to the Father? Of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I would, uh, I think a lot of people and one of the uh, precedents for open theism that I describe in the uh, early, one of the early chapters of the book points out that, um, that a lot of the things that we understand as, as being predictions were not necessarily understood that way. We have to be very careful using, uh, using language or seeing a fulfillment of something that was said earlier doesn't necessarily mean that that was a prediction that this would happen exactly the way it did. Um, I think the notion of fulfillment um, allows for some flexibility there. We can see that, that words have a significance and an application to our present experience without necessarily saying that was the intention of the individual who first spoke those words. They kind of take on a meaning. And I think, um, well, I think what happens with these, I, if you think, okay, Jesus quoting Psalm 22. Sure. Yeah. I don't think we can read Psalm 22 without thinking of Jesus on the cross. Was that a prediction of what Jesus was going through? Or was Jesus' experience, in a sense, 
finding in those words a way to, what should we say, impute new meaning to them. Because only at the cross, I think one could say, do we see evidence of complete abandonment by God. Now, I know that gets us into our understanding of the atonement. I don't necessarily want to go there. But, but you can see how a fulfillment might be giving words a present meaning that draws upon but is not necessarily completely um, preceded by what was there. But you've, you've raised some very interesting sure. questions. Yeah. I mean, it, and it does have to do with how, uh, how were the anticipations of the Old Testament, as Christian, I can use that, the Hebrew Scriptures understood as fulfilled in the New. Sure. Yeah. I just, uh, I, one, of the, one of the interesting things that open theism emphasizes is the fact that God works in response to, in reaction to, creatively responding to things that happen, a number, of, a number of which are not described as something that God really wanted. I'm thinking, for example, of 1 Samuel 8. Samuel's coming to the end of his life. He puts his sons in positions of being judges. They turn out to accept bribes. The people are unhappy with that. They say, we want a king like other nations. Well, Samuel's really upset. So he brings it to God, and God says, you know, they're rejecting me, not you. And he says, but they're going to persist, so go ahead and let them have a king, but be sure to warn them about all the things the king will do. And lo and behold, they came to pass. What's interesting, in a way, is to think about the fact that for Christians then, later on, who is the ultimate king? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, turns out to be Jesus. We've used, you almost might say, a concession on God's part that now gets transformed through, I would say, God's creative response to something that was originally undesirable, and it now has a meaning that surpasses <laughs> And in a way, provides a wonderful corrective to what King came to mean. So I think there's another way of putting together um, um, sort of past precedence and future fulfillment. Um, so yes, were the kings of Israel, like David, uh, a, a, a type of Christ? Well, yeah. Whose son is he? The Messiah is the son of David, right? Well, wasn't that always part of the picture? Well... If you read 1 Samuel 8, it doesn't seem. So that might be a, a testimony to the creative, providential uh, capacity that God has to interact and to bring about fulfillment of things that were not originally part of the intention. And one, one more illustration, I think a beautiful illustration of this, is Joseph and his brothers at the very end of Genesis. That fabulous, well, I don't want to say fabulous, but that arresting series of stories where he's sold into slavery and winds up saving his people. And, you know, once Jacob dies, his brothers come and say, okay, revenge. And I wonder what a Hollywood producer, typical Hollywood producer would do with, you know, because I think the two major themes of Hollywood movies are romance and revenge, you know, and, and the, the idea that the, the hero gets even with those who've wronged him in the last reel. Uh, and here we have a complete reversal of that. They said, you know, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I think here's a, a, an underscoring of the capacity of God to take things that were originally reprehensible, you know, brothers betraying one of their own, and using that to bring about something that actually benefited them. So you meant it this way, God was able to use it that way. I don't think the brothers stood up and said, well, then, you should make us princes here in Egypt, you know, congratulate us for playing the role God wanted us to play. It was not, 
we did exactly what God wanted us to do, but God was able to take through his creative um, providential activity, something that in itself was reprehensible and use it as the occasion to bring about something good. Well, well, thank you. I, I think that's a, a good way of wrapping up as our time is, <laughs> okay. is run out here. And uh, I think um, certainly uh, at least uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, the future of open theism has yet to be written uh, as uh, <laughs> it's an unfolding reality. Um, and uh, I'll be interested to see how your book uh, continues to uh, contribute to that ongoing conversation. Um, so I um, am grateful to you, Richard. Thank you so much for writing this um, interesting and provocative, helpful book, uh, The Future of Open Theism. Uh, for those who are listening in, um, you can, as always, pick up that book uh, by looking at our website, www.onscript.study. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a privilege, and uh, I'll certainly explore this interesting idea of prosopological interpretation. <laughs> Thank you. If I said it right, did I get it right? Prosopological exegesis. Yeah. Okay. We should always end on that note. Every time we do an on script, just, just talk about prosopological exegesis. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Until next time, everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 